Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Father, we do thank you for your word, and God, I just pray over our time together. Holy Spirit, would you teach us, would you guide us in the word, would you open up our hearts and our minds, we pray that nothing would block what you desire to say to to us today. And so we pray, Lord, we just take authority over the enemy, over lies that would try to get into our mind, things that would try to distract us, Lord, we ask that you would come among us in your healing and your revealing power, we ask that the strength of the word would cause fruit in our lives. And so we also now pray, God, over our region. We pray over our nation. Lord, we ask that uh, the coronavirus and, and the fear that's attached to it, Lord, we, we pray that that would recede. Lord, we pray that that would be extinguished. We push back on that together. We also ask, Lord, for all those that are suffering or struggling, whether it's with, within their job or their family, or the fear, or anything else that some of us and others in our community might be struggling with. We just pray today for comfort, peace, and for your hope to rise in our hearts. And we thank you that that's exactly what you are doing in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen Amen and amen. Amen. Yes. (laughs) I see you. Well, I've been thinking a lot about hope over the last few months in particular, which is why I want to bring you this word today. And I believe that the Lord has shown me something that I think as Christians we need to know. Um, We are continuing to move into a time of hopelessness for the world, but we know that our hope is not found on what the world does or does not do. It is not found in the stock market. Um, It is not found on us having a good day or a bad day or getting what we Want. Our hope is found in Jesus. Our hope is eternal. Our hope is not temporal. And it's something that we need to be reminded of as the people of God again and again. And I believe that the Lord wants to position us as Christians, as the church, to be bringers of hope in 2021. That's what the Lord has shown me. He's put this into my heart. But I want to minister to you today, and I pray the Holy Spirit more than anything, would minister to your hearts because as we go through a season of pandemic and everything that has happened as a result of what started in the beginning of the year, no matter what you believe about all this, no matter where you you land on any of this, the reality is, is that we're going through a time where sometimes there's this feeling that Christians need to have it all together. Like we need to know exactly what to do, we need to know exactly how to feel, and it's really easy to judge the church, and it's easy to judge yourself, and it's easy to judge others because, hey, you know Jesus, and you believe this message about eternal life, and so your life should be all put together, and you shouldn't have any hopelessness, and you shouldn't have any doubt, and you shouldn't have any wonder, right? You should have everything going, and, and, and it should be perfect in your life, and, and uh, it seems like the narrative of the world begins to point at us in this way. Um, as well. And so there is really no shortage of judgment (laughs) towards people that call themselves Christians or Christ followers. How do I know? Ask me how I know. I know because I I get a lot of those messages. But I want you to know that sometimes our faith can collapse when we go through seasons like we're in right now. 
I'm not saying we lose our faith in Jesus. I'm not saying he isn't our savior or our Lord. I'm saying that you gotta, we've got to learn how to get our bearings in a season like this. And I, and I want you to know that God is going to help us get our bearings so that we could be carriers of hope in 2021. And so today I pray that this would help you and help us find more of our hope in God, not in the things of this world. When you go through a season like we've been going through, it seems like we continue to feel this feeling like, I, I really hope things are going to get better, right? You really want things to get better. I, I hope the restrictions are less. I hope the virus dies. I hope the businesses reopen. I hope that my employment is secure. I hope that the market is fine. My retirement account is safe. You start to hope all these things, and, and things look on the up and up, and then bam, right? It goes back down. It seems like we take one step forward and two steps back, and we're constantly in this state of feeling like we're pinballs in a pinball machine, and we're never settling. That's been 2020 for me. It's like just when you think something's going to get a little bit better, it gets worse. Just when you think like something's going to change, it doesn't change the way that I thought it would change. And so I've learned that we can place our hope in an outcome rather than in the Lord, And when you place your hope in an outcome rather than in the Lord, you find that your heart goes up and down and your mood swings and all of that. Now, it's it's one thing to hope for an outcome, but it's another thing to put your hope in an outcome. And we've got to use this season as an evaluation tool to see where our hope really is, where our heart really is. Biblical hope, as we've just learned, is to have trustful expectation in the person and the promises of God. That's biblical hope. Worldly hope is the feeling that What is wanted or desired will happen. And there's a difference, and I want you to hear from the Word today about what that is. I want to ensure that our hope is properly placed in the Lord without assumption. And so I want to do a couple things today. I want to tell you two biblical stories, and then I want to tell you a personal story. And if we have time, I'll give you some principles that I learned about hope as a result of the story that I'm going to tell you. The first biblical story is about Elijah the prophet. I told you to turn to 1 Kings 18. I actually meant 19, so turn one more chapter over. But let me summarize 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'm going to have to do it very, very quickly. But this is a time in Israel's history that was extremely difficult, both naturally and spiritually. Naturally, the people of Israel were facing a three-year famine. So we're talking about water and crops and grain. People are struggling to find food. They're losing everything. Spiritually, the nation had sunk into an all-time low. Ahab was the king of Israel at this time. He probably wins the, the award for the worst king of all time. We know that because 1 Kings 16 summarizes Ahab by saying, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. How would you like that? Tagged on to your name, the signature of your email address. I did more to provoke the Lord than all the other kings before me. Ahab married a heathen princess named Jezebel who basically controlled him. She established a temple for the god Baal in Samaria, and she had her prophets tear down all the altars of the Lord throughout Israel. This was a horrible time to be alive, as people were not only losing everything, they just really had no hope. And so here we have... um, Ahab and Jezebel employ 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. Elijah shows up on the scene just out of nowhere, 
And he challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal and Jezebel. And he says, hey, meet me on Mount Carmel. And we're just, we're going to see whose God is really God. And so they all convene there. There's Elijah, there's Ahab, there's 850 prophets, and the people of Israel are all gathered there on Mount Carmel. And Elijah comes up with this plan. It's a contest of sorts between two gods. And he says, hey, let's build an altar to, to you build an altar to Baal. I'm going to build an altar to Yahweh. And we're going to place an oxen on that altar, and we're going, to, we're going to call upon each of our gods, and whichever god answers by fire, that god is real. Does that sound like a good idea? And they say, okay, well, let's, let's do that. And so the prophets of Baal go first. They build their altar. They put the oxen on the altar, and they begin to call out to, to Baal, and nothing happens, as you know. And Elijah, with sarcasm, says, well, hey, maybe he's busy. Call a little louder. And uh, they, they call a little louder. They start cutting themselves. And the Bible actually says blood started to gush out of their... It's a weird... It's in your Bible. Blood started to gush. And they, they were cutting themselves, which is self-harm is profoundly demonic. We see that in the Old Testament. And, and they do this and nothing, nothing happens. They're chanting. And, and so after a certain period of time, Elijah builds an altar with stones, and he places an oxen on that before all of those that are watching, and uh, he says, why don't you just douse this with water? And so they pour water, they pour a pitcher of water on the sacrifice, right, because it's going to be harder to burn. You see where he's going. He says, do it again. They do it twice. And he says, do it again. So they pour three times water. They douse everything. He even had them build a little trench around it where the water would just fill up the trench, and he calls on Yahweh, God. And Yahweh answers by fire. And it says that the fire of the Lord comes down, consumes the sacrifice, and licks up all the water. Almost like the, the sense is that it turns to dust. And everyone is amazed when they see this. And the prophet Elijah says, seize the prophets. And they seize them and they kill all of the prophets. And so after this happens, Elijah looks to Ahab and says, hey, even though it hasn't rained for three years... I hear the sound of rain. You better get back to Jezreel. And so Ahab goes back to Jezreel, and this funny thing happens. It's just, there's a, this is a mysterious passage to me in many ways, supernaturally speaking. It says that Elijah girded up himself, which means he took his robe and he tied it up, and it says that the hand of the Lord comes upon him. The last verse of chapter 18, the hand of the Lord comes upon him, which makes me wonder what was on him before, you know. The hand of the Lord comes upon him, and he runs all the way to Jezreel. Now, that's 17 miles, and he beats King Ahab in a chariot. Some of you would like that anointing. And we pick up the story here, 1 Kings 19. It says this, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. They're at Jezreel now. And he had killed all the prophets with the sword, or that this is what happened from Elijah. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. And he was afraid. You should underline that in your Bible. He was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which is several miles south. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said to the Lord, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now, here's a man who saw God send fire down from heaven, 
and all that God had done, and all it took was a note from a witch to scare him to run. Here's a man, he runs because he receives a note. This is a powerful prophet of Yahweh, just validated in front of all the people. He runs miles, and then he sits down and he prays probably one of the most insincere prayers that you can ever see in Scripture. Now, now I've heard people pray plenty of insincere prayers, prayed a few myself, but this has got to be at the top of the list. God, I'm nothing. I'm no better than my fathers. Kill me. Now, here's the deal. If he really wanted to die, he could have stayed in Jezreel, and Jezebel would have accommodated that. So he doesn't really want to die. He's complaining against God. Look how you treat your friends. I don't like how you do things. Listen to this in verse 5. The story continues. He lay down. He slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again and a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where Moses received the commandments. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, just for a moment, when an omniscient being asks you a question, he's not looking for information. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, listen to this, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing or a whisper. Some translations say the still, small voice of the Lord. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave. Now, why did God do this? Why did he send a strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire before he sent his voice? And I want to tell you why. When Elijah got to Jezreel, he expected judgment. He got there before Ahab. Ahab had told Jezebel what had happened. Jezebel sent a messenger with a note. Basically, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. When Elijah got that note and he realized that judgment had not come to Ahab and Jezebel, And what do we mean by judgment? Fire, wind, and an earthquake. These are forms of judgment in the Old Testament. You read that throughout the Old Testament, this is what you see. And this is what this story is all about. The interpretation is right here. Elijah expected judgment. And when he got the note, there was a sense in which the judgment had not occurred against those that he believed should. It should have continued just like with the prophets of Baal. And he felt that there was no power. He, he was confused because he didn't know what to do or how to execute judgment, which he felt was deserving towards those that, uh, that had sent him the note. And this picture, to me, it shows a clear difference between hoping in an outcome and hoping in God. Elijah expected that judgment was to occur against 
Ahab and Jezebel, and it did not work out the way that he thought. And this is why he ran, and the Lord says to him, why are you here? Because Elijah, being a prophet, knows he's only to do what God tells him to do. But he didn't do that. He ran. He ran because he made an assumption that God was going to do something that God did not do. And as a result of that, we find very, we see very clearly in this moment that he hoped in an outcome rather than hoping in God. Now, God did not promise to Elijah that this was going to occur, but he made that assumption. And I think it's an important contrast for us to see the difference. We also read here the rest of the story in verse 13. Now, pay attention to this because it's also important for interpretation. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I'm going to back up and reread some of this. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king over Aram, and Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Listen to this. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him or paid homage to him. From this From this passage, we see that Elijah had a wrong view of God's plan. Elijah expected the judgment to come against Ahab and Jezebel. But here's what the Lord says. I cannot bring judgment against them until I have proper leadership in place. And I want you to see that very clearly here. Elijah is thinking about himself. God is thinking about the entire nation and the world. And this is where you see that. So what happens to Elijah, he's hoping in this outcome. He's hoping that this is what was going to happen when it was going to happen. God was going to deal with Ahab and Jezebel, but he wasn't going to deal with it in the way that Elijah thought, wanted, or expected where he had placed his hope. Why do we know that? Elijah's thinking about himself. I'm the only person left, Lord. And and God's like, there's 7,000 left, man. And then he's like, I mean, in a way, he's complaining. This is a, no wonder you have so few friends. Look at how you treat them. This is the way Elijah is talking to God. And then God says, you need to go anoint the new king of Israel because I'm going to do what you're thinking, but I need to make sure that proper leadership is in place. The point here is that putting our hope in an outcome will always disappoint us. Elijah wanted God to kill him. Elijah was complaining. Elijah was depressed. And this is what happens when we put our hope in an outcome rather than in the Lord. Now, you can hope for an outcome all you want. We hope things will change. We hope things, there's nothing wrong with that. But putting our hope in an outcome will inevitably lead us to difficult places. Now, quickly turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. I want to bring a contrast to you in another biblical story. This is the story of King David. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me summarize what's happening here in this story. We know that in 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed king, but nobody really knew about it. We know also in 1 Samuel 17 that David goes up against Goliath before all of Israel, and he takes down their champion. And this means that David gets off to a great start. Wouldn't you agree? David gets off to a great start. He's anointed king. He takes down the champion of the Philistines. 
Everybody kind of knows there's something about this young, young guy named David. But for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, David's on the run for his life. He gets off to a great start, but now he's on the run. He's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from those Saul has employed to take care of him or take him out, should I say. He's also having to picture himself as foolish before the Philistines so that he can end up fitting in with them, which is exactly what he does. He ends up allying with the Philistines and living among them, and he's got this ragtag group of people who nobody else wanted that are basically David's army at the time. So he's living among the Philistines, and right here in the story of 1 Samuel chapter 30, it seems that David and his men, his small group of men, they're out with the Philistines, probably fighting a battle of some kind. They leave their families and everything they have back in Ziklag, which is where they live. And we pick up the story here in verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid raid on the Negev and also Ziklag, and they had overthrown and burned it with fire. I I want you to picture that. David comes home, and the Amalekites had burned the city to the ground. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone. And they carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed, now listen to this, because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. Picture this. David and his men come home. Everything's burned to the ground. Their families were taken. What would you do if you came home and this was your reality? You went on a three-day trip and you came home and your house was burnt to the ground. Your neighborhood was burnt to the ground and all of your families were gone. This is what they came back to. David was greatly distressed, obviously, because now the men that were with him are talking about killing him, and this is his leadership position. Heck of a time to be a leader. They're thinking about killing him, so he's distressed. It says that they were embittered against David, and can I tell you that bitterness is always the natural option when things don't go the way that you want them to, expect them to, or crisis comes into your life? Bitterness against someone, in particular against God, can always be the natural option. It is, it is your next door neighbor. It is very available to you in that time. It's not the right response, but it is certainly a response that we see again and again. With all of this happening, though, what does David do? He could get bitter, but this is what the Bible says in verse 7. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, however you say his name, the priest, son of Himelech, please bring me the ephod. So he brought him the ephod, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this band, he says to the Lord, shall I overtake them? And he said to him, God says to him, pursue, for you will surely overtake them and you will rescue everyone. That's the promise of the Lord. There are two things from this passage that we see, and they're a massive contrast between David and Elijah. We've got to see this parallel as we talk about finding hope in God, or we've got to see this contrast, I should say, as we look look at finding hope in God. He He strengthens himself in the Lord. What does that mean? He took his eyes off the circumstance, and he put his eyes on God. 
He took his eyes off the circumstance and he put his eyes on the Lord. He reminds himself of who God is. That's what it means to strengthen yourself in the Lord. He says to God, in my mind, he says, you are powerful and you can do anything. You are all wise and you are all knowing and you always know what to do. You are good and you always have my best interest in mind. He he reminds himself, you anointed me king. You're the one that called me into this. You're the one that blessed me with all this. And I know that you know what to do in this moment. You've been with me all of the days of my life. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He reminded himself of who God is. And by the way, that is what we need to do when we get into a place where our hope is drained. We need to remind ourselves of who God is. We need to take our eyes off the circumstance and put our eyes on the Lord. And when we do that, we will find hope in God. David does a second thing that I believe distinguishes him. It gives a distinction between him and all of the other kings. David inquired of the Lord. He asked God for his opinion. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I believe this is something that separated him from other kings. And this is so significant because David was a warrior and David could have ran after them in the strength of his own might and in his mind taken care of them with the guys that were with him. He could have done that, but he didn't didn't go, go in his own strength. He stopped because maybe he could have killed everybody too. He could have ran after the Amalekites and got everybody into this war. And maybe everybody would have died. He stopped and he looked up and he said, what do you want us to do, Lord? He inquired of the Lord. Do you see the difference between David and Elijah in a crisis? Elijah complains. Elijah says, take my life. Elijah basically treats God with contempt. Elijah puts it back on God like God doesn't know what he's doing. But David loses everything and he takes his eyes off the circumstance and puts his eyes on God. That's the difference between hoping in an outcome and hoping in God. Now, I want to tell you a a personal story. I've shared some of this with you and so I'll do my best to summarize as uh, much as I can. I have a story where that is rare. In that when my wife and I were married, we had what I would consider very, very clear prophetic guidance from the Lord. Now, I don't enjoy telling a story to a lot of young people because sometimes they think that what happened in my life is going to happen in their life. God's going to show me my divine design and just highlight that one. And it's, I mean, that does happen occasionally, but I believe we're supposed to use Scripture to help us understand the characteristics of a godly spouse and then choose accordingly. I, God does not always lead us to the, that specific person. I believe the scriptures are given to us so that we can choose, uh, make a godly choice. That's, that's the way that we should do that. I've met a handful of people that have had the type of direction that I've had in, in uh, my marriage. Now you should say, well, you could say to me, well, Ben, are you, you, know, are you sure about that? I'm, I'm absolutely sure about that. I have a very strange prophetic life, okay? Um, I didn't ask for it. Uh, I'm not bragging about it. In fact, most of the time, I'm, uh, I don't tell you half of the stuff because I want you to think that I'm normal, <laughs> you know, but I'm not normal, and, and uh, God is a supernatural being, 
and uh, some have the gift of teaching and some have others. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to explain something, and no matter how I say it, you could, you could think what you want, but the Lord, uh, three years, almost three, two and a half years before I met my wife in prayer, the Lord, I was a young, a young man. I mean, I'm like, you know, 20, not even 21 years old, and the Holy Spirit said to me, your first son's name will be Isaiah. Now, I thought what most 21-year-olds think, I thought that I was going to find that special someone and, uh, and marry her, and she was going to comply with what the Lord said to me. We are going to name our first son Isaiah. That's, that's of course, the logical uh, thing that you think, and, um, and uh, I was just 21. I met my wife a couple years later in 2003, and she had two sons that were eight and ten. Her oldest son's name was Isaiah, and I didn't connect the dots because I never thought that I would marry someone with children. That never entered into my mind, ever, in my, in my life. And at this time, I'm 23 years old. I don't think I have the chops for that. That's not something that I would even think about. But it was amazing because when Bridget and I started our relationship, it really dawned on me. It wasn't her second son's name was Isaiah. It was her first son's name that was Isaiah. And these boys clung to me right away. I mean, it was to the point where when she asked me to come be with her family at uh, like a family dinner, I said no because I didn't want the boys to assume that this was going further than it was. I wanted to make sure that I spent proper time with the Lord and with her before I made that physical commitment because I know that we have these two boys that are going to latch on. And I think it's a very serious thing. If somebody has children, you, you want to make sure that you're doing it the right way. You know? And so I tried to do the best I could at 23. And, uh, and so I made a commitment. Her and I got married fairly quickly in comparison to how maybe typically it's done. Some of you have that story, but um, I knew that I knew. And I had told the elders of our church when I was 22 years old that my first son's name will be Isaiah. All the elders at our church had heard me say this, so this is something you can validate. So when we, nobody had connected the dots when I, when I was with Bridget and then when we got married, but later on it was this big testimony in our church where people had heard me say this. And there were many other things that I could share with you that are quite supernatural and, and uh, without a doubt. We were married in April of 2004 and um, I was 24 years old and I I'm married to this wonderful, strong woman who really had raised these two boys by herself. She was a teenage mom. She was a mom at 16 and 18, and there were two different fathers, and they had abandoned their sons, and so this is, Bridget was just an amazing, she's the hero of my story. She raised these boys by herself. Her parents had gone through a divorce, and so she didn't have much help from them, and, um, and so, you know, I, when I married her, I felt like a catcher in T-ball, you know, you're just really not needed, you know what I mean? She could do this on her own. (laughs) But I became the father, and they started calling me dad right away. They asked me when we were engaged, can I call you dad now? It was on Christmas Eve when I asked my wife to marry me in front of all her family, and they said, can we call you dad now? And I said, sure. But we never asked them to do that, never forced them to do that. It wasn't something that I thought. But we we had an amazing start. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. We were driving. Uh, the first year was amazing. I mean, people said it was going to be really hard that, you know, you're taking on two boys and they're half grown and they're not yours and you don't know what you're doing. I was like, you're right. I don't know what I'm doing. But I had a lot of faith, optimism, whatever you want to call it. 
and, uh, and I knew this was right. We're driving down to Newport, the Washington coast. Everybody's asleep in the car, and the Holy Spirit said something to me that I don't have to write down, and I've never forgotten because I know it was from him. There are times where God speaks to you, you know that it's the Lord. You, you don't question it. And I don't, it's not every day, it's not all the time, it's not every month, but there are times where the Holy Spirit will speak to me, and I know that I know that it's him. And this is what he said to me on the drive while my whole family's asleep. He said to me that I have called you to help these two young men fulfill their destiny in me. And when the Lord said that to me, I can only explain it this way. It felt like a privilege was given to me. It was not a burden. I've never felt that in my life. I've, I'm not asking for, uh, you know, to look like the, a great guy or none of that. But the Lord showed it to me. This is a privilege that I've given to you to help raise these young men at your age, at your stage and all that. And that was released into me, into my soul. I, I, I carried it. Um, and the first year, I mean, I'd come home from work and... I was in ministry at the time, I was a youth pastor, and we would play basketball, and I hated video games, but we'd play video games for their sake, and we would read the Bible together, we did devotions every day, we'd worship together, we went to church together. I was really, at a young age, I'm really raising them. The first year was amazing. I mean, people were even like, how are you doing? Expecting things to not be great. Come on, you would never do that. But sometimes people say, how is everything? And they really expect things to be not so great, because that's happening in 2020. But I had that a lot, and... And, and I wasn't doing the happy, clappy, Christian, cliche thing, like, hey, everything's awesome. I, uh, I, I wasn't doing that. I was genuinely, like, actually, like, this, this was going awesome, you know? And it was an amazing testimony. And, but something dramatically uh, shifted after the first year. I was deeply committed. Bridget was committed. We were, our marriage was, has always been amazing. My wife and I don't fight or argue or yell at each other. We I can count on one hand how many times in 16 and a half years where that's really happened. We just haven't been like that. I think we've done enough of that in our previous life that uh, we just look at each other and go, what's the point, you know? <laughs> you know? So, you know, we disagree sometimes, but it's just, it's more simple than it is anything. And I'm a bit of a lawyer and she lets me win or she just lets me look stupid because <laughs> she's amazing and she just knows how to do that, you know? <laughs> she just sit there and just look at me and you sort of condemn yourself. <laughs> women are sophisticated there's no doubt about it even when men think they're right even when men are right it doesn't matter it just doesn't matter you know um, something had changed in our home and uh, you know for the first time I heard this as a 25 year old I heard you're not my dad and uh, I wasn't prepared for that to hear that I wasn't prepared. I mean, everything was so great. The Lord had spoken into this. I mean, I felt such a privilege and honor raising them, and I was really young, and it was, I mean, it was just this testimony around the church and all that, and you're not my dad. And uh, it just was like stabbing me in the heart, and it wasn't the first time I heard it. I continued to hear it. And then things begin to change. Fast forward, we had two more kids, and that added problems, as it normally does in a blended family. But nobody knows how to say what they feel, right? Kids are kids. They don't. And something shifted, particularly in the, in my, with my older boys. I saw one, my oldest was going down the wrong road, hanging with the wrong people, doing things that I won't talk about, but someday I'll bring him here and we'll talk through it in front of you. And pain entered my wife and I and our hearts. And, 
and this quintessential family that I felt like was almost a promise from the Lord, you know, month in, month out, year in, year out, things started to erode and it got worse. And we're fasting and praying and we're asking for counsel and we're being honest about it. There's no, there's no verbal abuse. There's no physical abuse. There's none of that. We're not screaming and yelling at each other. It's just going down the wrong road with our oldest. And then our second just stopped addressing me entirely. Stopped looking at me in the face. He started giving up on, in school and even writing his name on his test, and we were faced with very challenging times. Um, and I'm a pastor, and so there's shame attached to what's going on in my home. And even though they're my stepkids, I never looked at them that way. When I married my wife, I stood on a stage, and I committed my heart to her in covenant faithfulness and I gave these two young men a Bible, and I, I didn't assume that I'm their dad. They have biological fathers, and I care very much about their biological fathers. I care very much about them knowing their biological fathers. That matters to me. Legacy matters to me. I'm not here to take that place. I was not here to be what I was not. I was here to be what God called me to be in their life, and I knew that. But I gave them a Bible, and I wrote a letter out to them, and I said to them, I commit in this marriage to your mom, I commit to being here for you for the rest of my life. That is my commitment to you. I made that commitment on a stage. My, my covenant with my wife was what everything that that meant at that time. And I, tr- I treated them that way. So when, when this started to happen in our home, the shame that was attached to my life, my heart, every time I'd come to church, and I'm preaching, I'd started a real estate business because I couldn't make enough money in ministry, just being straight up with you. And and it just took off. My real estate business just took off, like far beyond me or natural. And, and, and we're hiring people and we're buying houses and projects. I've got this business going on that's thriving and, and booming with my family. And then this, our ministry, I'd written a book and I'd gotten that out and way more copies than I ever thought. I mean, just successful stuff. I'm not trying to prove anything, but successful stuff started happening. And it just was like, you know, that thing tries to make you feel good. You know, you've got more money than you've ever had or ever thought you'd have. You, you've got that income. You can be generous, and you're doing a lot of generous stuff, and you've got books, and, and thousands and thousands of books are out there, and all of this was happening. Everything was happening on the natural and the outside. It looked all great, but then I'd go home, and I'd feel like, but I can't help these two boys walk with Jesus, and it was just this shame on, that started to grow, and um, everything was great with me and Bridget, and we were fasting, we were praying, but nothing broke what was going on. And I was like, Lord, you told me that, 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 that this, you know, this is, I'm years now into this. They're in their high school now, and I'm faced with some of the hardest decisions that I've ever made in my life, which I can't tell you about, but I will say they were very difficult decisions, especially for a young man to make, you know. And I'd meet with people who had families, and I'd say, hey, this is what I'm going through, and can I just tell you... <laughs> When somebody is talking with you about really difficult things that are going on in their heart and their life, the best thing is not to just automatically say something like, well, all families have problems. There is, there is a difference in, in blended families, and I've learned that. There's not that biological connection, and I've read books about it. I've gone to counseling over it. I've got a lot of friends that are counselors. I've read a lot about this, and so now I know what I didn't know in my late 20s and early 30s, so if you have blended families, I could probably help you not because of all of my wisdom, but having gone through all of this and hearing what other people's advice is, it's like sometimes the best advice we can give is just listening, no advice at all. I love Job's friends. Like the first seven days of their ministry was they sat there in total silence. That's the best thing that they could have ever done, right? And uh, out, after that, it was terrible. 
They just, uh, <laughs> they just ruined their friendship. Uh, but, I, but that didn't help me at all because I'm like, oh, everybody has these problems, but I'm looking at everyone and it's not the same. It's not the same. And there's this verse that haunted me, this verse that talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it says, how can someone manage the household of God if he cannot manage his own household? This verse just haunted me. And I just would go home and I thought, well, I, I mean, I'm preaching at youth camps, hundreds and hundreds of kids, kids giving their life to Jesus. In fact, the boys, one of the things they resented was every church they went to, the kids knew who I was. <laughs> you may not know this, but I preached at a youth camp for Northwest far before I ever had come here. I used to, I preached at a hundred youth camps. I mean, I've, I've led thousands of young people to the Lord at all these camps. I used to preach camps and uh, I've done a hundred probably. And the kids resented that. They're like, we can't even go to any church. And, you know, anyways. But this verse haunted me, and uh, it led me to this moment where I sat in my, one of my best friend's office. He was the lead pastor of Mill Creek Foursquare. I introduced him to you months ago, Pastor Chris Manginelli. And I sat in his office, and I was done. I, I actually said to him, he remembers this, I said, I think I, need to, I, I think I need to get out of ministry. I think I'm done. And I shared with him the verse that had haunted me and and uh, he knew everything that was going on, and, and he said, I think you're wrong. And I said, well, do tell. Why do you think I'm wrong? And he said, well, first of all, you entered into a story. You didn't create one. And I said, well, that's true, but, you know, Chris, look at all these promises. Look at all, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't feel like I'm a great example, on and on. And he said, Ben, I, I think you really need to pray about that, but I think that God will use you in your brokenness. Now, I've learned a principle. You can minister in your brokenness, but you cannot minister out of your brokenness. And there is a big difference between the two. When you minister out of your brokenness, you're getting something back in return to satisfy a part of your heart that is not dealt with. But when you minister in your brokenness, certainly God will use you where you are. He will use you where you are. And you need to hear that. God will use you where you are. It doesn't validate any brokenness in, in your life. But this wasn't a brokenness that I had created. It was something I was trying to help the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem. And Bridget and I just fasted. We prayed and we made really hard decisions. And I got counsel from a couple of counselors. I had a counselor try to, uh, he kind of just tried to talk me into it almost. He just said, Ben, I can't give you any advice for what you need to do differently. You're just going to have to let this one go. That was what it took. It took a counselor saying something so simple. So it's not an issue of knowledge. What I had lost, friends, is I had lost my hope. I lost my hope. My hope was in an outcome. I thought this quintessential family, this is supposed to happen this way. And as the years went by, my faith started to collapse. And, and in fact, I would tell you this, my faith had collapsed. My faith had collapsed. And I found that there is a profound difference between having hope in an outcome and hope in God. And what the Lord did is he shifted my hope from the outcome that I had desired and hoped for to putting it and placing it entirely on him. That took years. In fact, in some, in some of the cases, it took 10 years. And now I could tell you all the testimony about everything that's awesome. We have a better relationship with them than we've ever had. We got to be a part of seeing restoration and the biological fathers. I mean, it's just the, the beauty of the story, but we're talking 10 plus years down the road years. And uh, there are some things that we cannot learn outside of pain. You don't want that, but it's true. It's true. There are things that I knew in my head, but I did not know in my heart until pain entered my story, and I learned to depend on God with all my life. 
See, all I wanted was for my kids to love the Lord and to walk with them. That's all I wanted. I didn't care about what they did in this life. I don't care what they do for a living. I, 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 don't, I don't have the American dream. I, I have a, a, a Jesus dream for my children. I don't want them to be successful in this life and go to hell. I still believe that there is a place of separation eternally from God. It's called hell. It's in the Bible. It's in your Bible. And that's, it haunts me. It plagues me. And so I didn't want that for them. And it, 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 was, it was so difficult to go through that. Me and my wife, we, we just, as we walked through that, it was pain. The pain drove me to the Lord. It drove me to the Lord deeply. And I can't imagine um, not being able to find my hope in God in those days. And even in the days uh, that I'm in now. And I, so I want to share with you Six things, and I'm not going to preach them. I'm just going to share with you six things that I wrote down that I learned. So if you're ready, I just, these, are, these are things I learned, and I want to share, share them with you. Find principles for finding hope in God. Number one, our relationship with God is everything. It's everything. I can honestly say uh, that I would have lost it if I didn't stay in the Word and prayer. Being in the Word is not about a spiritual discipline. You need, we need the word just like we need food and water. The word is for us. It is absolutely, it is not just a religious routine. I can tell you that God was my greatest encourager. He reminded me of things along the way. He encouraged my heart. He encouraged my wife. God did things and I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today if God wasn't my number one encourager. My relationship with God is everything. I, I, I needed that because for some reason, I started to get really angry, and I'm looking at this young boy who's now in his teens, and I committed my life to serving him, to loving him, to raising him, and now all he brings me is anger and not pleasure. I'm just being honest with you. And I, had, I needed God to shift that, and he did, because this boy was dealing with his own pain. And when you're a kid raising a kid, <laughs> let me just tell you, you've got issues too. Come on, parents, where are you at? Sometimes you, you, you don't find that out until you're parenting. And the Lord got me out of that. The Lord encouraged me during that time. My relationship with God is everything. He touched my heart. Number two, God always gives us the grace we need. I wish that God gave me the grace that I needed in advance. I mean, in a sense, he has through the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't dispense that grace until the time that you need it. And so none of us are prepared for what we're about to go into. My battles, my greatest battles, your greatest battles are probably still ahead. But let me tell you something in advance. God will give you the grace you need when you need it. And so when you get into a situation that feels over your head and you feel like you're losing your hope, know that God will give you everything that you need. He always does. He always has. And he taught me that grace was available if I received it. I've watched people emotionally shut down when they go through difficulty, when they lose their hope. I've watched them completely shut down. And when we completely shut down, we do not receive the grace from God that we need to enter into the situation and see things go the way he wants them to. You cannot shut down. You have to receive from God. So he gives you the grace, but you have to receive it. Number three, money is such a small thing. I remember when I was most successful, you know, and... I had all of this on the outside, but it meant nothing. I'd go home and I felt like it meant nothing. 
None of the success, none of finances, nothing. You can get money back. Friends, let me tell you something. You can get money back. But we, if you're parents right now, don't waste your life overworking to compensate for something you feel like you don't have at home. And wherever you're at as a parent, you can redeem that right now. But that's what will happen is we'll start making money or being successful. That will start to tell us that everything's okay. No, it's not okay. And I learned that money is a small thing. It's a small thing. I, I never, I don't lose sleep over money and I, never, and I don't believe I ever will because when you go through these situations and you find out what really matters, uh, at the end of the day, you, you know what to look at. Number four, we need strong, godly friends. I thank God for good parents, a godly wife who's my best friend, who knows me better than anybody and loves me in spite of me. Come on. I thank God for godly friends who know what to say and what not to say who don't patronize me, who don't put me down, who don't make me feel like I don't know something, who treat me with respect and honor and love. And can I tell you, you need godly friends, godly friends, friends that are willing to say something about your heart that nobody else can. And, and yearly, we need to invite those friends back into our heart. Don't assume that your friends will cross the threshold of your boundaries and say something that might be difficult. You have to invite them into your life. You yearly have to tell your friends that you think will say something difficult to you if it's needed or say something that might cost them. You yearly have to invite them in and say, hey, if you have anything to say or if you see anything, I invite you to speak to my heart. There are very few people that can do that for me where it matters that much, but I thank God for godly friends. It helps us to find our hope in the Lord. Number five, our performance does not change God's affection for us. Just yesterday, I was on a drive and I as I was driving here to church, I, 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 uh, I just felt the affection of God. If you don't know what that's like, ask the Lord to show you his affection for you, his love for you. God loves you. God loves me deeply. And it's not just this ethereal theological thing. It's real. It's as real as you are sitting there right now. He wants us to know his affection, and my pitiful performance does not change his affection for me. I'm 41. That's not old. It's not young either. I'm sort of in this uh, limbo state, you know, whatever this is. But it's interesting because each year that goes by, I'm less impressed with myself. I'm less impressed with my ability to live the Christian life. When I was younger, I thought, man, I'm really killing it at this thing. And then you get older, and you just realize you were young. (laughs) He's not impressed by my pitiful performance at trying to live the Christian life. And um, his affection does not change. Number six, and finally, hope in God will never disappoint us. We can hope for an outcome all we want, but if our hope is in an outcome we will be disappointed. When we put our hope in Him, whether we get what we want or not, you won't be disappointed. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Romans 15, 13 says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I had a woman walk up to me after the service, after I said this verse. I put this verse on there yesterday before I uh, came into the service. I put it on my notes, and I had a woman walk up to me 
Uh, I know her from our church. She's a member here. And she gives me this, and she said, Pastor Ben, I was supposed to give this to the oversight pastor to speak this during the, during the service, and I want to give this to you. I mean, she didn't go in the back during my message and chop this up. She brought this. Can I read this to you? I'm going to. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What are the chances that I put this verse on the end of my notes and somebody walks up to me with this piece of paper at the end of the service and said, this is the verse that the Lord gave me. You are a part of a prophetic church and this is what God does. It's just amazing. I love being a part of a prophetic church where the Holy Spirit speaks. Will you stand? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. I had this picture, and I'm going to pray over this. I had this picture that uh, a car, a car would represent our life. A car was driving, and then all of a sudden the tire got punctured. Not just, not just with like a pinhole, but it got punctured. The air came out, and, and the car kept driving. The person kept driving the car, and the longer they kept driving the car, the more damage, damage the car got, the axle, everything. It just kept, and I believe that's a word for some of us that maybe there's been a puncture, there's been something damaging in your life, and you just kept going, hoping things would get better, and it's just caused more and more harm in your life. Maybe you've been able to keep it under wraps. Maybe you've been able to keep it away from people, but I just want to tell you the Holy Spirit wants to breathe hope over you today. He wants to help lift you in a way where you can look up and see Jesus and walk with him in in a fresh way. And the second thing I'm going to pray over is reconciliation and relationships. Whether you're a father, mother, or you're a son, daughter, or brother, sister, I'm just going to pray over that. I believe every time we talk about something like this, that the Lord is in it, and he wants to reconcile families. God is in the business of reconciliation. So I'm going to pray over both. And if that's you, just Put your hands out to the Lord if it's you and ask the Lord to do that in your heart today. Father, we thank you today that you're breathing hope into our life. You're helping us to find our hope in you and not just in things, not just in people, not just in circumstances, not just in something going the way that we want it to. So we might hope for an outcome, Lord, but we're not gonna put our hope in an outcome. And we today, we lift our eyes and we look at you and we say, thank you, God, for breathing life over each one of us today, I pray, God, those watching online, those that are in this room, we pray that you would breathe hope in our life, in our hearts. Help us to come alive in those areas that we need to be fully alive in you. And I pray also, Lord, today, I pray that you would reconcile families. Inspire us, instruct us, encourage us, Lord, that you can do what we can't even think, hope, or imagine. You will do far beyond what we even pray today. But we ask that you would honor the prayer of reconciliation for fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. We pray that you would again initiate the process of reconciliation where there has been no hope. We ask for hope because, Lord, it's your desire to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons and the fathers, to bring families together. And so we pray for that, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.